It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Would you like to contribute to the conversation? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition? Jay talking with Bradley Jay. I listen to morning with the sun up. I'm busy. WBZ News Radio 1030. I tune my radio to AM 1030. The radio's all yours now. I talk to a man whose name is Bradley Jay. Improve my mind in a wonderful way. I just called in. To see what condition conversation was in. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, what condition conversation was in. It's WBZ, your Jay talking, and we are live, midnight to five. Bradley Jay, your host. We're with Rona Elliott, among many other hey, Bradley. things. Hi, among many other things, Rona was the official photographer at the original Woodstock, Woodstock 1, which... No, no, no. Oh. No, I was not the original photographer. That's Henry Diltz, my friend. Oh, well, my mistake. I I understood you were a photographer okay. and the liaison. I am a photographer, but I did local community relations. So I did things like go out to the Kiwanis Club and tell them what a great experience the onslaught of a half a million of us young people would be and arranged a square dance with the local people and all kinds of things like that. So your job was to make the locals understand that you weren't a bunch of crazies that were going to destroy their land? Um, I'd say it was a stretch to understand that. It was a different time. I don't know how old you are. But um, they were uh, fearful, rightfully so or otherwise. And we were trying to tell them we were just like their children, but probably had longer hair or something like that. Now, how did you get in a position where you were cl- close enough to Michael Lang to have him know who you are to hire you to do this? Well, um, no literal position. I had been in Algeria, and I had been backpacking around the world after working at the Miami Pop Festival in 1968. There were two Miami Pop Festivals, one produced by Michael Lang and another produced by a, a gentleman named Tom Moffat. And after that, I took off on a trip and went in Algeria in this, uh, May of 1969. I was considering staying for the Pan-African Cultural Festival, which was going to be hosted, strangely enough, by Tim Leary and Eldridge Cleaver. Just imagine that for a minute. And I got a telegram from someone I had worked with, Mel Lawrence, at these previous pop festivals I'd worked on, saying, come home, festival in upstate New York. And I thought, well, the Catskills or Algeria? And being a New York kid who went to summer camp and bungalow colonies, I said, okay, the Catskills. So within two weeks, I was on a plane and uh, ended up in Wallkill at the first site. And I pitched Michael, who I just met, on doing the job in local PR because he had hired a fantastic group of people from New York at that time called Wartoke, who were doing all the big PR, knew the people in underground radio and college stations and stuff like that. So that's how I got there. So you're 
you know, really early on, you were a go-getter. Did you have parents that were go-getters or something? How did you, you no, know, not, not everybody's like you. No, that's really true. But my parents were dysfunctional at a time when dysfunctional was not a popular word. And at age 10, I discovered music in a profound way. And I knew I wasn't a singer. I knew I wasn't going to be a girlfriend to musicians, never have been. And that the, uh, the thing that saved my life was rock and roll. So I just headed in that direction, putting one foot in front of the other. And as I think I mentioned to you earlier, um, my three rock and roll credentials that really set me on my path was uh, being at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965 and seeing Bob Dylan plug in, which was one of the great thrilling experiences of my life. And then seeing the Beatles perform at Chavez Ravine in Los Angeles in 66 and then working at Woodstock in 69 and I realized okay this is my path I just have to see how it unfolds so it had nothing to do with my family it had to do with incarnating this lifetime if you believe in that kind of thing actually so it, it may have had it just, it may have had something to do with your family because they seem to energized have energized you to get away they, get away get out of town and I did you know it's funny in 1965 I went to see the Rolling Stones at the Long Beach Civic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And the tickets were very expensive for my friends. They were $5. I kept the ticket and I went alone. So that was what I love to do was be a part of live rock and roll. And it still is the case to this day. Now you say you discovered rock in a profound way. Was there a moment? Was it one particular gig? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I was too young at the time before um, the arrival of of course, Bob Dylan and the Beatles, there were things like Chubby Checker, Johnny Mathis, Dion and the Belmonts, American Bandstand, and that was all thrilling. And then Bob Dylan showed up, and that was planetary alteration, as it was with the Beatles. You know, that was not music. That was profound connection with other people and transformative experience being delivered through music. At least that's the way I describe it. Was, so, was Dylan transforming that? Sorry. <coughs> was, Dylan, was Dylan transformative to everybody or to you? Well, I think later he became pretty transformative to everybody, at least everybody I knew. But at that, that moment age. when and he became... He, no, I was a little ahead of the crowd. I remember hearing, you know, Hollis Brown and Girl from the North Country and just where he was coming from and blew my mind out. It was as if some deep part of me resonated with where he was coming from. And this was in the year or two before he became the answer to everything and everyone's idea of God and everyone attribute, uh, attributing to him all kinds of things that no human being could ever live up to. But it was absolutely transformative hearing him and hearing who he was, what he was communicating, and how he was communicating the sort of the poet and seer um, and thoughtful humanitarian uh, delivered in a funny little package from Minnesota. You know, nothing has ever compared to it. The same as nothing has compared to the Beatles or the Stones. The Beatles are, I like to say, waist up. It's the heart and mind, and the Stones are waist down and sex and rock and roll. You know, there you go. So, when you saw the Beatles, was that a continuation for you of what you, what the what Bob Dylan did for you, or was that a right turn? Does that take you in a different direction? Oh no, it was all part of the same thing. It was the power of music to alter reality, 
And I think because of the time we were in, if you think about the mid-60s and the British invasion, and you think of birth control and the anti-war movement and the assassinations of Martin Luther King and JFK and then Robert Kennedy and the beginning of uh, Stonewall Movement and Black Power, all these things were leading up to this eventual expression, from my point of view, in Woodstock, but the music was the glue, whether it was Curtis Mayfield or Sly and the Family Stone or the birds singing Turn, Turn, Turn. It was the music that was the thing that crossed all across um, my generation of boomers and, you know, the people subsequent to them. It was the power of the music, and it was the thing everyone connected through, I think. We're with Rona Elliott, who worked at the original Woodstock with Michael Lang as a public relations liaise between the 69 organizers, the 1969 organizers, and the local community. Well, there were many of us, Bradley. I always say, because we've lost so many of our incredible people who made this happen, that my job during that festival was a small job. It was really my job as a music journalist and archivist and historian in the subsequent 50 years that has allowed me to sort of track everyone we work with, work on a number of different documentaries and historical pieces, do a 40th book with Michael, work on this PBS documentary that just came out and the CNN documentary that's coming out this weekend. So with my brain on, with my hat on as music journalist, at least for me, I was able to kind of contextualize the experience because while working in the 80s for the Today Show, I used to go overseas with musicians all the time to do these long-form profiles and interviews and cover concerts like Live Aid and all that kind of stuff. And I traveled to a lot of communist countries uh, for NBC. And I used to ask my translators to tell the kids wherever I was that I worked at Woodstock. And the inevitable reply everywhere I went was, we want our own Woodstock, whatever that came to represent as an aspirational idea of whether it was peace and love or music and getting along, I think the reason that 50 years later Woodstock is still important is it captured something in the universal imagination about the possibility of people being together within a large tribal community and expressing themselves through music and love, which is what, at least for me, Woodstock was about. We continue with Rona Elliott, who was the public relations liaise between Woodstock organizers, the original Woodstock. She was one of many, and the local community. Now, were you able to be at Woodstock, the event, or were you, you know, out at... Of course. Okay. So, <laughs> you know, there's a... Talk about the Thursday before, the, the, the arrival of people, as maybe opposed to what it was like at the end. I, I've seen photographs. People look fresh and... and uh, and optimistic, yeah. dry. Yes, there? that's right. Yes, enthusiastic. Okay. So At, Thursday they yep. arrived. They just arrived, and then they kept arriving. And there were no fences, and no turnstiles, and no ticket takers, and they just showed up with no end in sight. And it had been, I think, pretty abstract. In late May, I think there were thirteen of us, and by the last. Uh, day of delivery by the three women who were preparing lunch for the crew. There were between three and 400 lunches delivered. So that's how big our community had grown. And in that abstraction of the last 
two weeks of just working 24 hours a day to get the stage built, it'd be easy to have forgotten that there was actually a festival coming. Everyone was so caught up in what they were doing, and yet people started to show up. It was insane on foot with backpacks, with, you know, every manner of thing, um, VW buses, camping equipment. I mean, it was really like, you know, the tribes have gone out into the wilderness and they arrived at Yazgur's farm. It was quite extraordinary. Okay. Can you, the best you can, give kind of an hour-by-hour account of your experience during the actual concert? Well, I I couldn't do that if I tried. A, my mind is sufficiently gone and it's been 50 years. I can give you a contextual overview, which is um, sort of how I think of it. By the second day, my press tent had been taken over as another um, uh, medical freakout tent. So uh, like many others on staff, you went where you were needed. And because the toilets weren't able to be serviced and we had run out of food and the roads were closed and people couldn't get in and out, I went and I worked in the operations division organizing food drops and blanket drops. So I think one of the characteristics in talking about the hour by hour thing is whatever your job was, where you were needed was where you went. For me, the Woodstock crew and the staff and those of us who are still breathing were people that I would still want to be on the Titanic with because you could count on them. Um, And there were lots of people doing lots and lots of different jobs. I certainly heard some of the music and saw some of the music, but I remember walking around being totally stunned because I never would have sat in that audience. I just never would have done that. I can't sit still. It wouldn't have occurred to me to sit still for music, much less sit out in a blazing sun. But that was one of the beauties of it. Um, uh, With a couple of other people, we helicoptered out to Liberty um, during what turned out to be the unbelievable rainstorm. And we had gotten out right before it to take a shower and try to get an hour or so of sleep. And I remember flying back in over this massive field, which everyone has seen pictures of, and all you could see was the steam rising from the bodies on the field, many of whom had not brought any kind of plastic coverings. You know, it, it was a summer in the you know on the east coast during a rainstorm but people weren't prepared and it just looked like a steamy jungle and i remember landing and then getting off and thinking wow these people are incredible they're all helping each other they're not insane they're incredible and so my entire point of view shifted to what it took to remain like that among this enormous outpouring of people and if you've seen the um Images, and I'm sure everybody's seen the images by now, people who are interested at least. You know, there was a lake where people went swimming and they took their clothes off. And I've interviewed hundreds of people who've worked there, who've been in the audience, who were in the town, who every kind of person who said, you know, I went over to the lake and there were naked people in the lake. And I'd never been naked in front of strangers and in some cases naked in front of anybody. And I thought, but this isn't sexual. And they took their clothes off and jumped in the lake and had a transformational experience that changed their entire life. And that had nothing to do with flying the family stone performing. So, you know, Woodstock had endless different segments and places and corners and arenas and hog farm and chicken coops and experiences that may or may not have had 
anything to do with music, but had to do with people's personal transformational development and the way they regarded other human beings. And I don't know how old you are, Bradley, or how old our listeners are, obviously, but this was a community who I believe gathered because one of the things was not only to see each other, that there were a lot of us who were against the war, people who were really disenfranchised relationships from their parents who said, hey, there's lots of us out here, and the recognition that there were a lot of us. And, you know, when I think about an experience that really blew my mind, if you think about Swami Satchitananda and his devotees up on the stage doing Salute to the Sun, and that this was the first time, this was yoga in front of 500,000 people. Now, 50 years later, everybody's walking around with their yoga mats and their mindfulness practice. And to me, that goes directly back to Swami Satyajananda, the artist Peter Max was a devotee of his. And the year before that, to George Harrison going to Rishikesh and taking the Beatles to meet the Maharishi. So I think the implications of the times and the 50 years that followed, much of that can be traced back to Woodstock. Now, I know I haven't answered your hour-by-hour things, but these were the impressions that I was getting as I walked around and tried to absorb what was happening. You know, what is going on here? It's so outside the reality of anything any of us had participated in. And by that time, I had worked at three festivals and had attended many more, but nothing with 500,000 people. It was insane. I get mixed messages on the purpose that people gathered there. There there is a guy named Steve Kirkton who's a Boston Globe reporter. He went to that, and he, he actually went to it just to go to it, but... It became a news event while he was there, so he did cover it. Right. He said primarily folks went because it was going to be a good concert, not as an ex- an exercise in changing the world. And only after, it was only okay, after so- the, the circumstances became apparent and the people began working together. That It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Then it did kind of become an exercise sizing in a new kind of world. And then, of course, after that, they and the press and everybody paints an extra patina of nostalgia over it as, yes, they came together to change the world. And in your sense, how much of it was, hey, we're going to go see a great show, and how much of it was, we're coming here for a cultural experiment? Okay, so first, I don't know Steve, and I understand that he went, uh, did you say he went to cover the story, he just went to the concert? He went to the concert, but as soon as they talked about shutting it down, it became a news story. Right. So Barney Collier is 85, and I just interviewed him. I did a month-long Woodstock course at NYU, and he had a similar story. But I think that what's important to understand about Woodstock is that everyone has their own story. So Steve's experience of his particular interpretation of what happened, maybe he went for a great concert. Abby Hoffman 
went and Jim Ferrat, who started, you know, the Stonewall movement, had had a meeting with Michael Lang in the village before as to whether or not Woodstock was going to be a place to have political discussions or not or have a political platform. In the end, they had an area where they could do that, but they weren't really allowed to take to the stage. So I think with regard to the example you're giving me, that was the kind of experience. He had. I know for many, many other people, and especially young people who had been on the festival circuit in, in 67 and 68 and out at Monterey and maybe in Atlanta and some of the other places, they went with the idea of having a community gathering. I'm taking nothing away from Steve's experience, but saying half a million people, half a million different experiences. It's like going to see the Avengers. Some people like it and some people don't. Some people think the end of the Game of Thrones sucked. And others really liked it. So I think that was probably true for him. But for a lot of other people who went for a tribal event, they had a tribal event. Okay. For people who, you know, I just think people had different experiences. And I think people always do have different experiences. And so he's not wrong and the other guy's not right. It's just that's how it unfolded for him. I think the truth is between... Actually, I, I have to I have to break now to, very briefly to okay, do this bye. news. I love the way this is going. I love the tack you're taking. Hope we can continue with this a little bit. It's WBZ yeah. more with Rona Elliott after this. CBS News special report. Breaking news. After an eight-hour standoff, police in Philadelphia have apprehended a suspect they say has been shooting at officers all day, injuring six with bullets. KYW Radio's Kristen Johansson from Philly. This has now been eight hours nearly exactly, but this suspect is out of the house. He came out with his hands up after very lengthy talks with police after shooting six police officers, all in stable condition, thankfully. But he actually had two of the SWAT officers also trapped inside the home. They got those two officers out. It was an active scene at the hospital where those officers were taken to. Luckily, all of them are already out. KYW-TV's Kimberly Davis. Families were rushed into the emergency room entrance to be reunited with their loved ones who were injured in the gunfire. There's still a large police presence here in at the hospital as well as the situation in North Philadelphia. CBS News special report. I'm Matt Pye. You know, I spent years in radio. I love radio more than television. I spent years in radio, so. What do you like better about it? What do you? Why do you like it better? Because you're more of your own boss. Looser. Yeah. Looser, more conversational, more imagination. I love television, but radio was was my first love because radio delivered music to me. You know, I think another thing to uh, to think about with regard to Woodstock is that. Many of us who work there and really wear it as a badge of honor went on to extremely distinguished careers because of what they did there. I know you're going to have Bill Hanley on, who's now 82 years old and is considered the father of Festival Sound, who managed miraculously through his phenomenal work ethic and commitment to deliver sound to what ended up being 500,000 people, but was only intended to be 100,000 because of his analysis of the way the field unfolded and where would you need to have the speakers to reach this corner of the field. And he changed the entire structure of concert sound as we know it today. Chip Monk, of course, distinguished himself remarkably with lights, despite the fact that most of his lights uh, remained under the stage during the show uh, because uh, of a lack of time to both put them up and the rain and the dangers inherent 
with all the guys and the crew working with him because most of it were guys. There were women there in support roles, but not, you know, uh, in the primary roles. That was just what was going on at the time. And you can sort of go through the list of people there, and everyone went on to really do incredible things, I think, out of this Woodstock experience because they performed the impossible in the face of the impossible. And it has been, you know, a wild ride. I don't think any of us, I was talking to Michael Lang the other day, expected to be having this conversation 50 years later. You know, it's just insane. You mentioned Michael Lang. I'm. A, this is good to be talking with you because I always have wondered how much of a businessman is he and how much of an idealist. And sometimes well, you can't be both. he's a really close friend. And so I would always say, and Michael, if you're listening, I'll see Michael tomorrow, that in Michael's universe and what Michael will be remembered for and rightly was having a vision that he was able to manifest with the rest of us like a Pied Piper showing up to do that. I, I think Michael's original vision, his desire was, of course, to make money. But at the time, his vision was to share the experience of being out in the country listening to music with his friends, which was something he really loved. He lived in Woodstock. There was He had lived in Miami before and then Brooklyn before that. But that was a particular kind of summer experience that he really loved. And he wanted to put on a show and share that with other people. And I think that the times were such that uh, Michael's vision put him on the karmic map. You know, he will be the guy forever that made Woodstock happen. We showed up, but I think he was like a Pied Piper. A call went out in the universe and the right people showed up, whether it was Bill Hanley or Chip Monk or Mel Lawrence, may he rest in peace, or Stan Goldstein. Uh, you know, Peter Goodrich, Don Ganong, many of the people who have passed who were just brilliant at making things happen in impossible circumstances. But I see Michael, after all this time and knowing him pretty well, uh, you can count on Michael for having his heart in the right place. I know there are lots of opinions about Michael and everyone, you know, everyone has opinions about everything. But for me, when Michael, and I said this to Michael, so I'm not saying anything that I haven't said to him. When the obituary is written, it'll be he was the creator and the visionary behind Woodstock. And that's what that's how it will go down in uh, Wikipedia and the World Book Encyclopedia, which no longer exists. So uh, 69, Woodstock 69. That was funny, Bradley. That was funny if you don't know what the World Book Encyclopedia is. I do, I do. Yes, it was funny. Okay. So 69, Woodstock made a statement about where the world was at in 69. If that's true, at, and it, at that at, moment, at that I moment, so true. if that's true, and it is, what, what, did, what did ninety, what did Woodstock ninety nine say about the world at that moment? Because that was a, well, I went to one of them. I didn't go to the other one. I never believe you can recreate events. So that's the first thing. Like everything else, whether it's landing on the moon or the current election or Katrina, you get a one shot at any particular thing to compare and contrast isn't fair to anything. And I, I wasn't involved, so I can't really speak about it. For me, a Woodstock 69, being a spiritual nature, intuitive, whatever you want to call it, was a singular event, never to be repeated. From my point of view, a window opened, 
and closed. Very clear to me that this was never going to happen again. Do you kind of wish so that anything, it would, where they were not called Woodstock in, the, in this 50th anniversary attempt? Maybe no. it was called some big show, but not Woodstock? Right. Well, that fits in the shoulda, woulda, coulda department, so I don't know. It wasn't my call. I don't think you can ever go back. I really, really mean that. It's like people say, oh, I'd pay anything for the Beatles to get together. Well, it isn't going to happen. You know, just people have hopes and dreams that fulfill their own needs and requirements. And that's how things unfold like that. So that's what they were going to call it. And there was, I think in Michael's mind, uh, not speaking for Michael, but I think there is a tremendous urgency now and a tremendous desire and hunger on the part of a number of different younger generations. And I have kids in their 20s for something like a Woodstock to take a stand for Parkland and gun control and ecology. And in that way, to mirror the participation of my generation in Woodstock. So there is that desire by younger artists and, and yes, younger people to have something where they can take a stand for what they believe in. And in that sense, I think that's where, Uh, Michael and the other people involved in the idea of Woodstock 50 came from because Woodstock is an idea. When you talk to people, when you talk to people that did not go, have not been, do you hear them say things that show them to misunderstand? Are there any myths or misconceptions about Woodstock that that you know are such? I also see things. I I was. This is just very funny. I was. hosting a, a birthday party for Henry Dilt, who was the original Woodstock photographer. And Michael was there, and there was another famous photographer in a different realm who went up to Michael and said, you know, I wish I could have been there. <laughs> now, I've witnessed, and I said to my friend, you know, he's never heard that before, because people feel a deep need. And as I said, I just taught a class at NYU and at Oregon State and at Amherst, people feel a need to tell you they wanted to be there, but they got stuck on the 87. They wanted to be there, but they couldn't get out of summer camp. They wanted to be there, but their parents said they disowned them if they went. So there's this longing for feeling that they missed something, right? Yeah. And then the woman, the woman that I taught the class with was on the 87. And a big flatbed truck came barreling by, and some weird, insane person said to everyone in her car, it's canceled, go home. And she turned around, she turned around and went back to the Oh, my now. God. There was a rumor that it and was I said, closed. I said, shut Karen, down. I said, Karen, that's why you just taught this Woodstock class with me. So people have very strong feelings that they missed the expression of our generation for right or wrong and whether or not anyone else thinks it was an expression or not, you know. Um, again, it's mythologized. It's legendary. It's a dream. It's an idea for some people, and for other people who became conservative after Woodstock or had a conservative point of view, it was, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and the ruination of our culture. So it really depends on where you were at the time and where you came out of the '60s. Um, I did a lot of interviews for the 40th book with Vietnam vets who shared that one of the things that kept them going while they were serving over there were letters from their friends on the mainland who said there had been an anti-war festival 
in support of them, which it, in effect, it wasn't just an anti-war festival. It was many things, but how that made them feel, because had those guys, and it was 99% guys, not been in Da Nang, they might have been at Woodstock. And these were young men who either enlisted or were drafted or their families were in the service. So I think it goes across our entire cultural spectrum of what was going on in the 60s. And again, while it may have appeared to be a concert, it encompassed so much more. You know, when Abby Hoffman actually kind of ran up on stage to take Pete Townsend's mic and call for John Sinclair being, I think, released, if I have the story right, for, you know, being in jail for a joint. Pete Townsend didn't, he didn't know Abby Hoffman from a home. Some guy took his, um, uh, you know, his microphone, Pete hit him and knocked Abby off the stage. So, you know, there's also all of these side stories, all of these side stories that can tell you something or nothing about a minute at Woodstock. People who didn't get out of the hog farm area, they had their Woodstock there. You know, it's. Tell me about the class. Was, like, what did you, you sat down and put the syllabus together? What was important for you to I put transmit? The syllabus together. We had 38 guests in a month. And we brought in Michael and Tom Law and Bill Hanley. These are staff members. Gerardo Velez, who was uh, Hendrix's percussionist and roommate, who uh, has talked to me extensively about Hendrix uh, rehearsing the Star Spangled Banner. You know, he was in the Air Force before. We brought in a black Vietnam vet whose minds were blown when uh, they got to Vietnam and then were shunned when they got back to Roxbury. These are your local folks there who went on to get a Ph.D. and work with underserved kids. We talked to uh, women in the clothing business who, after their kind of Woodstock experience, went off and started women's collectives in India and taught them how to sew and how to support themselves and how to become active members of their community. We talked to this will blow your mind if you don't know this, because I didn't know it. There was at the same time, and actually tonight in New York, there was the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was called Black Woodstock, with Nina Simone and Sly and the Family Stone. The police would not um, work the event. So the Black Panthers worked the security for the events. The police were afraid of going up there. And that had the greatest black artists at the same time. And it was all recorded. And I think it was aired on NEW TV in New York, but people didn't know about it. Now there's a whole series this week on what happened there at black Woodstock and what it represented in the black community and for black power. So we talked about that. We had people on in every walk of life whose lives were altered either by their participation in Woodstock or what they were doing at the time and how the counterculture may have turned around their life. As I said, we had 38 guests. It was really crazy. We had Lisa Law on, who was a hog farmer. We had Barney Collier, who was the New York Times Metro desk guy, who ended up there, ended up sleeping on the stage with the photographer from the New York Times. And when Rockefeller and the National Guard had threatened to shut down Woodstock, he called into the desk, and I don't know if you know who Scotty Reston was. He was the editor of the New York Times. And Barney Collier said, this is peace and love here. There are no riots. There's no nothing. The story you're being told is not true because Woodstock was so threatening that they wanted to shut it down. And Barney Collier said, no, it's incredible here. 
it couldn't be happier or more mellow. So we had him in, and we just had dozens of people talking about their experiences and their particular moments of life and how being either a part of or being in the wave of the larger part of this experience and the counterculture that summer altered the path of their lives. So it was very, very moving. A couple more questions if, after the, this, if you have the time. Like 10 more yeah, minutes. One more, are we taking a break Yeah, a little, little bitty one. little tiny one. Thank Take you. a tiny break and then come back with your one more question. Yep. Rona Elliott. We continue with Rona in a moment. Jay talking. My, my, hey, hey. Hey, pay attention. I'm talking for a reason here. All night long with Bradley J. With Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I know how this sounds, but something told me to turn on the radio. A voice on the radio told you to come here. Radio zombies all night long. You just have to listen. Bradley J's coming on strong. Jay talking. Bradley J. You're up next. It won't be long. WBZ. Can I talk? Talk to you. You gotta talk as well. The hour is gone. News Radio 1030. We gotta call for the Jay talking show. We gotta learn what you say. Bradley J. WBZ, we're really fortunate to have Rona Elliott with us on this special day, anniversary of day one, Woodstock in 69. I want to just finish up one thing about the class that yep. I think, and then you can ask your question. Sure. So we were at the NYU Gallatin School of Individualized Study, and I said to the kids in the class, and they were sort of 19 to 33, and students from all around the world, I said, why did, why did you take this class? What do you think this is about? And, you know, they couldn't really explain it well. They heard about this thing. And I said, whatever your preconceived notions were of what Woodstock was, I assure you, by the end of this month, you will have completely different ideas. And I think more than anything else, and they were such incredible students, it was their, not only their hunger to know what happened, they didn't even know that at the beginning, but their ability and their experience of being around people who took a, a stand for transformation in their lives. And if you're 19, 20, 21, 22 now, it is a dark palette out there for a lot of people. And I think these kids really saw that their lives can make a difference, that they could take a stand, that they could do whatever they do within their community. So it was deeply moving to be a part of a group of people who were able to share that with them. Okay, your question. The rest, the rest is about you and, uh, you know, what, what a great career you have and have had. My, my favorite thing that you've done, I think, is traveling to cool places and doing feature-length pieces on these great artists. And, uh, I agree. Can you pick person. a couple of those and with the best story and share it? Well, I've, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a tell because this is a funny story, although I have to leave the swear words out of it. So I've been shooting a story in Bath at Real World, Real World Studios with Daniel Lanois, who had been U2's producer, and he was a huge favorite of mine. And, and Peter was there, so there's like 
two of my favorite people, and I just love them to pieces. And I had just love and respect Peter Gabriel and love his music. And then we were going into, with my crew, into London to shoot um, some of Daniel's concert in Chelsea. And there was a private party afterwards. And I'm a happily married woman who doesn't sleep with musicians who um, never like to go alone to these parties because I'm not trying to make friends of rock stars. I have my own friends and all that. So I used to invite my two friends uh, with me, uh, Kevin and Sue Godley. And Kevin was best known uh, during his heyday in 10CC. But they were my good buddies and they were my dates to all these kinds of things. And it was really a star-studded after party. And again, I'm not trying to make a new best friend of, uh, you know, Peter Gabriel. But we were sitting at a table and Bob Dylan walked into this room. And I think he had just worked with Kevin on something. And he sat down with us. And I really, I stopped breathing. I'd met him before, but the man was sitting next to me. And I, I just, I leaned over and I said to my girlfriend, I may never breathe tonight. I'm never going to pee. I'm not getting up. Bob Dylan is here. That's that's it. I'm done. I'm life is yeah, That's pretty huge. At which point, my actual most favorite artist in the entire world walked in, Van Morrison. And anyone who knows anything about Van Morrison knows he was, at least certainly then, a prickly character, but whose music takes me to other realms of reality. And I had just interviewed him for the Today Show, and I invited him to sit down with us, knowing that he and Bob Dylan were very close and longtime friends. So now I'm sitting at the table with Kevin and Sue and Bob and Van, and my life as I know it is over. So that's a and good, if, good if night. If I died on the spot, everything would be just fine to be in their presence, just to be breathing next to them. They don't even have to sing a note. How about Leningrad? So hey. Well, so then we're... We're just sitting there, and the edge walks over, and he stands in front of Van, and he lowers his head, and he does about a 10-minute riff on, without you, we wouldn't exist, and without your inspiration, we wouldn't ever have gone forward, and on, and on, and on. And anyone that really knows Van Morrison knows this has gone on too long. And the edge wraps it up and says, you know, thank you, and Irish music and the whole thing. And he walks away, and Van looks at us. And I can't say the swear word, but he said, who the hell was that? <laughs> so, so can you give me a little bit of the, the Leningrad before, you know, during the Soviet Union? You went there, was, was that Billy well, Joel? I went there with Billy Joel, yeah. and um, it was remarkable. It was just remarkable because I brought stuff to give away to the kids. I had had a show at the Hard Rock uh, on the NBC radio network that I was hosting with Paul Schaefer. And I was close friends with the founder, Isaac Tigret. So I got dozens of Hard Rock t-shirts and stuff to give away. And it was the first rock concerts there. And first of all, the shock of being somewhere where, and this is, you know, the late 80s, there was no food, forget technology, there was no nothing. People had nothing. And uh, systems were set up at a pace, you know, to check into the hotel took two hours because everyone's just dragging their time out, passing the time because you're going to get the same salary whether you're fast or slow. And a lot of the communist leaders in uniform came to Billy's concerts, and they were the ones taking up the front seats out of a million photos. And then there are the kids 
who, again, through these translators would say, you know, we, we learned English through listening to the Beatles through Voice of America. And so that was really moving to me because music is an internet, it's a universal language. You can understand just the way you are, whether or not you're speaking English or not, you hear it and it moves you. And so we spent as much time as we could um, with the kids. We heard Billy perform a lot. We went to what was then Leningrad and is now St. Petersburg. And I did an interview with a, a man named Boris Grabenshikov who really wanted to be the USS first rock star. And he really didn't manifest that, but he sort of broke the ground for lots of other bands, including Pussy Riot, who would later. And I remember going up to an apartment that he lived in, which by any standards, 50 or 60 or 70 years ago would have been a breathtaking apartment. And there were five families in there without running water. And all I could think of is same planet, different reality. But that the, because I was having these experiences because of the music. So it was very, very moving to be a part of it. Billy was great. His family, I believe, had come from either Lithuania or the Ukraine. So there was a sense of connection there. And for a lot of people, including myself, did my family come from Russia or Poland? The borders kept moving. So it was just fantastic to be there. And it was fantastic to see something and see if you can hang in there. That was in decline, but it wasn't ready to go yet. You could feel it in the air because rock and roll was, if rock and roll was there, one foot was in the grave for the system that was in place there. It was just a matter of time. So it was very, very moving for me to be there. You got about 60 seconds. Anything that you can use to talk about what no, I, what's I, coming up for you? you? Know, I well, what really comes up for me is I believe in the power of music. As everybody knows, we're in this transitional moment of music. There's great people making music, but how do you hear them? Everyone's on their iPods or streaming services. People are sharing, but the people that make it out there in the public arena are the more mainstreamed artists who the record company's distribution systems report. And I would say if I have one gripe going forward, young people cannot afford to buy tickets to concerts because of uh, resellers and the price of tickets. So my first Rolling Stones show for $5 at the Long Beach Civic Auditorium in 1965, you can't get to the Stones now without at least a $150 ticket, and that's for the nosebleed section. Yeah. So somehow we have to get the... And, and I want those young people to hear music. Music changed my life. I love music. Before my family came along, it was all about rock and roll. So to, to somehow find a way to continue to share music and have it be meaningful. And I'll finish with this. For my generation, the glue was the music. For this generation, it's the technology. I would urge young people to see how do you use the technology to be tribal, to be connected for something meaningful, for meaningful change, to find peace and love and environmental stuff and, and gun violence. We had the music. You've got the technology. Perfect. So uh, would, I'm done. And, I would uh, sign off on that. Yeah, that's great. Boy, you're, I bet you're fun to hang around with. If you ever come to Boston, I hope you'll let me know. Oh, I'm well, I'll be back. We did a, a Woodstock class at the Berkeley Music School with me and Chip. Oh, and yeah. Henry and Elliot Chip's, Chip's actually on tomorrow. And Michael. Chip is on tomorrow. Yeah. I, I, have to, I have the news coming up. Thank you so much, Rona Elliott.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.